of Archives and History for the special exhibit Spirits of the Passage, the story of the transatlantic slave trade, open now through August 11th. Details at twomississippimuseums.com slash spirits. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 20th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, state budgets are starting to take shape in the legislature. We'll hear concerns from both sides of the aisle. Then, a new investigative series takes a deep dive into education funding. We'll talk to its creator, noted journalist Jerry Mitchell. And author Jennifer Harvey talks about raising white kids in this week's book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi legislators are hammering out initial budgets for state agencies. The House passed bills Tuesday to fund dozens of state programs for the fiscal year that begins July 1st. The Senate did the same Wednesday. Legislators are also trying to find a way to raise salaries for teachers and other state employees. Republican Senator Buck Clark of Hollandale chairs the Senate Appropriations Committee. He talks with MPB's Desiree Frazier about the difficult process of budget making, starting with the concerns of the Department of Public safety. We brought them back up to level funding, gave them their PERS increase, just like we did everybody else, and health insurance increase. And we'd actually put a little bit more money into their budget back during the legislative budget committee meetings. Uh, that's something we'll certainly look at. And they, any pay raise there would be part of an overall state employee pay raise. So if we say, okay, we're doing a state employee pay raise, well, they would get caught up in that. But see, right now, the sworn officers are under a similar type pay raise plan like school teachers are. In other words, they depending on how many years that they've been with the, with the highway patrol, they move up. They know their pay is going to move up every year. Whereas you hear people that say, oh, I haven't had a pay raise in seven years. Uh, you know, somebody like that, the sworn officers, they see their pay go up one, two, or three percent every year. Uh, but, but these, some of these DMV workers might not fall under those categories. So, uh, again, they will be looked at with everybody else and so many others that need pay raises, uh, Department of Corrections officers, uh, social workers at Department of Human Services, uh, Department of Health, Department of Mental Health, those caregivers. Uh, we're, we're looking at all of them. I mean, we're hoping when maybe we get a revenue estimate, a revenue estimate adjustment that Maybe that money will be there. There's some that's saying uh, there's not enough money for employee raises. Well, not right now. Not not with the money that we have. Uh, after we, as I mentioned this morning and yesterday, that we had 159 to allocate. The first thing we did was make sure each agency could cover the retirement increase. Our retirement system asked for a two percent increase from the employer. Well, that equals 62 million dollars. That took the first $62 million of 159 Well, then there's always discussion, well, how does this agency stand as compared to last year? So we said, well, let's just go ahead and plus them up to make sure they're level funded with the PERS increase. Well, that was another $41 million. So really we had spent $103 million just doing those things, just covering the retirement and just getting them to last year's level. So after that, we added $25 million for the teacher pay raise. 
which we passed that bill in the Senate last week. So something we've passed, gee whiz, we've got to put the money in, you know, to do it. So we did that one. So now we're up to about $128 million. And the other items we paid for our property insurance, which we pay for as a deficit usually. We put more money into Medicaid. We put more money to Child Protection Services, Department of Health, Department of Mental Health, several places like that that used up the rest of that, you know, about 20-something million dollars. It went quick. Again, in March, the Revenue Estimating Committee will be meeting again, and they'll be looking at our collections we've had so far this year, which have gone great. We've collected more, about $90 million ahead from where we expected. So they'll look at that and, uh, you know, make a... A, a revenue adjustment uh, for next year, and that may bring us more money. And obviously, everybody has that pay raise on their mind, and uh, that'll be one of the first things considered. Thirteen years is a long time um, for state employees to work and not see an increase. What we've been told, you have to go back to what's the definition of pay raise. For some people, getting a pay raise, it, just as I mentioned, how the teachers. And the Highway Patrol have a chart that you can, it'll tell you how your paycheck's going to go up every year. And they don't consider that a pay raise. Some people don't. Although your pay goes up every year. They consider a pay raise. Just what we're doing with the teachers is every one of those squares in that box gets an increase. That's what they'll consider a pay raise. Uh, things like we'll, you'll hear the word reallocation and realignment. A lot of times that really means pay increase. People have gotten that, and they say, oh, yeah, I got realigned, but I didn't get a pay increase. Well, your, your pay went up. You know, in the private sector, which is I work in a lot, if your pay goes up $1 from the prior year, you got a pay increase. Now, it was only $1, but, uh, again, you get into semantics and definitions. And I mean, we were told that uh, I know in the last eight years, 93% of state employees have gotten some kind of pay increase. Just a few years ago, I want to say about four years ago, we, we gave everyone who made less than $30,000 a $1,000 pay increase. I know we did that. That was just three or four years ago. Republican Senator Buck Clark. Senator David Jordan is a Democrat from Greenwood. He tells our Desiree Frazier he has concerns about some of the budgets passed, but he says departments like public safety need to understand one important thing. None of us never get all we ask for. You know, it's just the way the legislature works. They give you a portion of it, and then hopefully, as uh, the old folks used to say, when we can see further, we'll do better. But we're glad that they were able to get some resources, maybe not what they wanted or they thought they needed, but it's moving in the right direction. And that, that is significant, and I want the general public to know that uh, we do the best we can in most cases with what we have. And they're talking about having a trooper school. It is needed. I think the more and the better and the more efficiently our troopers are trained, the more efficiently they can do their work. Because what, what we're running into there shootings everywhere and there are killings uh, everybody a little jumpy now you know, across the country and i think the more training we have the more efficient we can be in those areas in terms of the department of corrections it looked like they got a deduction is that correct uh yes what we had been trying to do uh, non-violent crimes we've been trying to release some of those and maybe Department of Correction uh, may not uh, felt 
that uh, they didn't need the resources that they may have needed. Now, I, I, I do say this, the satellite facilities that is connected with the Department of Correction need resources. So uh, any reduction in the Department of Correction in terms of dollars may have been a mistake, but we're trying to reduce the number of nonviolent crimes uh, uh, in the uh, Department of Correction. As a result, that would give some alleviation for resources that they could be using in housing those people. Well, they've been asking for funds for education programs and for pay raises. All state employees hopefully will get a pay raise. I thought it was said that there's not enough money for pay raises. I think there's a bill out there to give them a pay raise. We'll see how the cookie crumbles. Sometimes that happened at the 11th hour. Any thoughts on the bill for mental health, the appropriations bill for mental health? It's okay, but it's not adequate. Uh, and I have original six mental health is in my area need resources. They have to turn people down because they don't have enough resources. And some of these people um, are mental cases which they put them back out in the streets, and as a result, things may not go right, and they could get into a lot of trouble, hurt somebody. So those people who have mental problems, then uh, it ought to be, should be, and, and as much as possible, that they can get the services they need at a facility uh, for that purpose. And when resources are denied because of shortfalls, whatever they are, it does make the problem worse. Senator David Jordan. Coming up, a new investigative series takes a deep dive into education funding. We'll talk to its creator, noted journalist Jerry Mitchell. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Our next autocorrect topic will appeal to two types of listeners, those that are inquisitive about the world and those that are interested in the sport of autocross. If you aren't either of those, you'll still want to listen to get your automotive questions answered. Email us at auto at mpbonline.org or give us a call during our live show today at 10 a.m. on MPB Think Radio and on the MPB Public Media app. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. As the state budgeting process begins in the legislature, funding for Mississippi's public schools is certain to attract many arguments and much attention. A new journalism outfit called the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting is tackling the issue in a series released today. The organization's co-founder is Jerry Mitchell. He's the reporter credited with renewing modern interest in civil rights era murders and has been the recipient of the coveted MacArthur Genius Grant. Mitchell talks with us about using multiple multiple news outlets to look into the history of education funding and about starting his new project. Well, we started this in January, uh, Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting, and, and it's a nonprofit. Um, uh, Debbie Skipper's the editor, um, investigative reporter, and um, we're just trying to uh, ensure that, that good, high-quality investigative reporting continues to be done in the state and want to support that and, and keep it going. And so that's our goal, and our goal is basically to work with all 
uh, news outlets across Mississippi. We're partnering with the Mississippi Press Association. And on this project, uh, the work has been done not just by us, but the uh, Mississippi Today, the Clarion Ledger, uh, the Sun-Herald, the Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal. So we're very tickled to be able to work together with all these news outlets. That's very ambitious. If you start in January to be up with a whole series completed with all of those entities involved. Right, right. And so that was the goal. We wanted to kind of get it up and running and and have our first project out. And we've got this project's out this week, and then we've got another project that's out next week on gun violence. So it's uh, we're up and going pretty quick. What issues are you most hopeful to get involved in? This particular project is about public school funding and public education, and um, we're, we're doing that. We want to do some criminal justice projects. We're interested in um, such issues as abuse of power, corruption, all these things that are, that are important, I think, to average Mississippian. We want a government that's transparent. We don't want our public officials operating behind closed doors, and that's kind of our goal is to as we say in our motto, you know, shining light and exposing darkness. I think that's the goal of what we're trying to do. We want to make sure that, um, you know, Mississippians know what their politicians and policymakers are doing. Today you're unveiling a new effort involving many different news outlets. Talk about what this series is. It's called Public School Funding War of Attrition. It's about uh, looking at public school funding historically where it is today where do we go from here and so we have quite a number of stories uh you know mississippi politicians you know kind of believe in bashing public education unless of course they're running for re-election so that's kind of the uh the there modus is a operandi. teacher's pay raise in the works yeah and, and and that's kind of strange we'll see what happens with that it's kind of odd so far at least at this point it appears to be a bonus instead of a permanent raise but uh, lawmakers say they're going to change that. And then, you know, we've, we've got uh, a story about uh, just kind of the history of the funding of public education. Before the Civil War, most of the state funding for education went to private schools, which is kind of fascinating. Went to private schools. It did. It did. It, it, most of the funding for they they. Back then, people didn't think of public schools like we think of public schools. They, the idea of a free public school was something novel and new. In fact, that didn't come about until Reconstruction in Mississippi. Tell us some of the things that you've learned that maybe surprised you that you didn't expect from this entire series. I was kind of surprised no one had ever done come up with a figure. And so I did the math uh, and figured out. How much less funding was there for the black students compared to the white students? Like, how much less did they get than the white students? And so I was able to get figures from 1890 through 1960 because Mississippi actually kept track by race of the funding by race. And so I did the math on it, and it turned out in modern dollars, black students uh, got $25 $25 billion less than the white students. Now, that was an astounding figure to me. I don't know about anybody else, but that's a that was a pretty astounding figure to me. Looking at today, right now, right. how does Mississippi compare to other states in amount spent per student? Oh, we're less. In the southeast, we're, we, we spend less. And in fact, Arkansas, I think, spends like 2,000 more a student than we do. And Arkansas is pretty comparative, I think, in terms of 
you know, in terms of income and those sorts of, you know, it's it's a more common state than perhaps any other state around us. And they spend 2000 more per student, according to the latest figures. So I find it interesting. There seems to have been more of a de-emphasis on public school funding uh, in recent decades here. And uh, the legislature came up with, uh, with this formula years ago. And they've only fully funded the formula twice. And they've tried to get rid of it. Last year, there was an effort to... And there been an effort to get rid of it, but then the alternate formula that was kind of proposed, they didn't like either. So... uh, MAEP is Mississippi Adequate Education Program. It is. Do you think the legislature ever intends to fully fund that program? It's a good question. I, I would think, at least unless things change, it doesn't appear they're they're headed that direction. Uh, they they appear headed to try to replace that formula rather than follow it. Again, this is being released today. How is it being released? How can people see this? Yeah, you can go on to the center's website. That's MississippiCIR.org. Jerry Mitchell is the co-founder and investigative reporter for the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. Coming up, author Jennifer Harvey talks about raising white kids in this week's book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For moments in black history, we salute Fannie Lou Hamer. The civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer is known for her words, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, during her testimony at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. But the Mississippi native would also lend her voice to many freedom songs during the civil rights movement. Fannie Lou Hamer was a true champion of the people, and we salute her leadership. This has been MPB's Moment in Black History. I'm Robin Young. In the 1980s, Run DMC were hip-hop superstars who couldn't get airplay on mainstream radio. Aerosmith was a once great rock group tottering from drugs and personality clashes. Then they combined on this, everything changed. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. When it comes to race, is being colorblind best? Not according to the author of today's book club selection, Raising White Kids. Drake University professor Jennifer Harvey explores the complexities of race relations and how parents can teach their children how to embrace diversity in a multicultural America. We have a generation of white youth being raised in families where good-intentioned, colorblind strategies for engaging race are leaving our kids, youth, and young adults unequipped to navigate diversity, let alone be good anti-racist allies in a very racially inequitable society. Because racial perception is a product of environment, what can change that perception? Does it have to come from family? Does it come from family, school, community? It has to come from all of those places because the perception of race and experiences of racial injustice are everywhere in the United States. And so our families are one of the places where kids get the most conversation about how to navigate environments that they encounter. And so we've got to be talking about race and talking about racism 
with the goal of raising anti-racist children so that they are better able to understand what they're experiencing in the environments that they move through in the world where they encounter racism on an ongoing basis, sometimes even without realizing that's what they're seeing. If an adult learned from their parents who learned from their parents that certain words were acceptable, descriptions of certain races were acceptable, how does the parent check themselves? You know, on the very basic level, we've got no lack of resources just inundating us with improved, updated, nuanced discussions about race, about the appropriate language, identity categories. I mean, Google makes everything available. We've got great journalism on these issues. And so that's one way. But the other thing that adults, white adults who are raising white children really need to do is commit to learning ourselves and also find other folks who are desiring to raise a generation of youth who are more able to engage in anti-racist ways than we were because of what how we were raised. So we can interrupt the cycle, but we have to prioritize and make it a commitment to do so. What are some commonly held beliefs that are wrong and even hurtful that are continually carried forward? One of the biggest is either I don't see race, I just treat everyone the same, or I'm teaching my children that regardless of one's race, I just we just need to love everybody. And those teachings, though they come from the, the, the right value, right, they're coming from a place of saying we want to embrace and value humanity, which is an, a value that I ascribe to and I'm advocating in this book. That value sort of generically doesn't help kids. They don't understand what that means when they come to encounter racial difference. Generating a conversation with our children about race, they just never talk about it with adults. But meanwhile, they're having all kinds of racial experiences in an unjust racial landscape in our society. And so they just either internalize racism without us realizing it, as many, many, many white adults have done, or when they do have questions, they don't go to their parents for them because they've learned, they learn early that it's a taboo that we're not really supposed to talk about difference. We just treat everyone the same. And so we really end up underdeveloping white youth in ways that they could actually be supported, nurtured, and um, journeyed with if we chose to break silence with them and actually engage in these complex conversations about difference in our society. So when someone says, I don't see race, they should be seeing race because they're whitewashing an entire race of people. That's right. People of color have said over and over endlessly now that they want their racial identity seen and affirmed, so it's not a compliment to say that you don't see race. And secondly, it's just not true. I mean, neurologically, it's not true. We know that babies notice skin tone differences, and so it's really kind of a cognitive dissonance to say, I don't see race when you're living in a society where race is everywhere, and we all notice it. You said earlier that there's no lack of information for parents so that they're modeling well for their children, but how do you motivate the parents to look for those sources of information? I spend a lot of my time talking to, with, and partnering with white Americans who in some ways don't need the motivation. They know something's wrong. They're horrified by what they see in the news. They're devastated to have us as a country talking about blackface again and whether or not it's okay. And it's those parents that I think are already kind of motivated not because they know exactly what to do, but they know there's a problem and they want to be part of generating the solutions and raising kids who are part of the solution. And so 
I'm really interested in supporting and partnering with those adults. And over time, the more we grow that sort of network of people, the more we impact and change our workplaces, our schools, our churches, so that more and more folks, I think, start to see the urgency. But that's my starting point, is really engage with those who know we have a crisis and really are trying to figure out strategies for doing better from our particular experience as white Americans. Jennifer Harvey is the author of Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America. Dr. Harvey, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much, Karen. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's AutoCorrect. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online by visiting mpbonline.org. You can also download the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. Or you can subscribe to Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition. Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Department of Archives and History for the special exhibit Spirits of the Passage, the story of the transatlantic slave trade, open now through August 11th. Details at 2 Mississippi Museum.